Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. There's a big difference when your child just wants to come and cuddle with you and lay with you and be near you. Like, you love that. But when your child wants to come and treat you as an ATM, you know, or, or just get more screen time or be a tattletale and they have this agenda when they come to you, it feels really differently. And that's how the interaction felt here between the Sadducees and Jesus. It's much easier for us to come to God with our own agenda and demanding answers rather than to just want to be with him. But the Sadducees, they came that day with the agenda, and the agenda was to disprove the resurrection because they were a group of upper-class religious leaders that did not believe in the resurrection. Luke 20, 27 records it this way. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They were referring to the Old Testament law of marriage that we find in Deuteronomy 25. And this law stated that when a man died and he left his widow childless, then the widow should marry the man's brother. And so in this story, the widow marries the man's brother, and he doesn't give her any kids, and so he dies, and then she marries his next brother, all the way hypothetical to seven people. And they're kind of saying, like, so what happens here in heaven if this lady's married to all seven of these guys? Which one is she really going to be married to in heaven? Now, we know that they're just trying to discredit Jesus because they don't even believe in the resurrection that they're asking about. They're posing this scenario to discredit Jesus' teachings. Why? Why do they want to discredit Jesus? Because his teachings make them feel uncomfortable. Now, one of the beautiful things about being in the Anglican tradition is we use a thing called the lectionary, and it drives our passages that we preach on on Sunday mornings. And we don't really get to choose what we're preaching on because we're preaching on the same passages that a lot of people around the world are preaching on. And sometimes we get to these passages that make us feel uncomfortable it would be easier to skip over the no marriage in heaven passage because that's going to make some people feel uncomfortable. But Jesus made people feel uncomfortable, especially upper class, rich people who did not need to depend on anybody else. What was this carpenter from Nazareth doing? I mean, how could he say things that were causing people to stop following the Sadducees and to start following them. I mean, can you consider for a moment Jesus' teachings through the lens of somebody who maybe looked like us, many of us back then? I mean, some of us consider ourselves kind of the upper class or middle upper class or elite. And back then, Jesus' teachings would have felt pretty offensive to anybody who felt like they did not need anybody else. We'll put this passage on the screen from the Magnificat. In the first chapter of Luke's gospel, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. He has scattered the proud in the conceit of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Or five chapters later, we read the Beatitudes in Luke 6. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' words felt like great news for the poor, but they felt threatening to the rich. And interestingly, history seems to be repeating itself. You know, in the U.S., if maybe the richest country in the world, the number of people chasing the American dream continues to increase every day. But all of a sudden, the number of people that are claiming the resurrection to be true is decreasing. And it has a lot to do with something that happened to the Sadducees. It has a lot to do with people not believing in the resurrection. Because if this life is all there is, why shouldn't we do whatever it takes to get as much money and as much pleasure and as much happiness now, right now, if the resurrection did not happen? So in America, less people are claiming to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're claiming to believe that our hope is in the American dream, getting as much happiness right now. But it's different in some other countries. If you go to the global south, if you go in May on our mission trip to Rwanda with the fellows, then you will see something different than you see in America. You will see this hunger for God that is often hard to find in our country. Why? There's greater poverty, there's greater need, there's greater dependence upon God alone to be the provider. And it's causing Jesus' word to spread like wildfire. I think it boils down to a couple questions that we've got to wrestle with. Is this earthly life all there is? And number two, do I actually need God? If, are you living a life of dependence upon God? Or are you living a life of dependence upon yourself? Independence is the American dream. But when God created us, he created us for human flourishing to happen when we commune with him. Human flourishing cannot happen independently. Think about even the procreation and the continuing of the human race. It cannot happen independently. It requires communion. And in much the same way, God designed you to commune with him. But the Sadducees, they did not want to have to depend upon Jesus as the Messiah or anybody as the Messiah. They wanted to be able to earn God's favor through their own behavior. And one of the biggest tensions that you are going to face in your life is that tension and that battle between independence and dependence. And it starts when you're a baby and you become dependent completely among your mother to even feed you. But then as you grow into a child, the terrible twos happen and you start becoming as independent as you can be. No, I want to do it. You want to do it by yourself. And then for my teenage friends in the room, you know, that independence, you know, is like gas getting poured on that fire. You cannot wait until the day you have keys to your own car, until the day you have your own ATM card, until the day that you can be out of your parents' house. But it doesn't stop there. Because when you become an adult, you still are fighting for independence, fighting for more money, fighting for more and more so you don't have to depend on anybody else. And all the way to the end of life, 
we kick and scream for our independence. My grandmother's 93, and she still lives by herself, and she is kicking and screaming for her independence right now. She doesn't want anybody to help her. And for those of you who are caring for your aging parents, you know that battle all too well. We are a human race that loves our independence. But even the very Son of God, Christ himself, showed us that we were designed to flourish in communion and dependence. In John 5, 5, 19, Jesus says, I say to you this, that the Son of Man can do nothing apart from what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, so the Son does like it. And in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Sadducees, they didn't get this. Their hearts rebelled against any need for dependence, and we are just like them. It's important for us, anytime we read scripture, to be able to insert ourselves into these true accounts, to this story that is telling our story. But our temptation is to want to look at the Sadducees with judgment. But we often are looking at God the same way that they are. We're wanting our way, our will, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you currently dependent on God or yourself? Now, as we start wrestling with these things, it can bring up all these emotions inside of us. God, just leave me alone and let me run my own life. I don't like having to be dependent upon you or anybody. God, why did you design me this way? Well, we find the answer in Jesus' response to the Sadducees in a response about marriage and heaven. And we'll put this on the screen. Luke 20, 34 through 38. Jesus replies, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Y'all, much like independence, many of us tend to idolize marriage. And the church, over time, has even participated in this. And we've done a disservice by overvaluing marriage and devaluing singleness and celibacy. And while marriage is beautiful, and it was created by God as a gift from him, it is not the ultimate solution for loneliness. And those of you who are are married, you know that all too well. Marriage, and even a sexual relationship, is not the one thing that will complete us or that will bring us wholeness or happiness. If so, if that is true, then Jesus himself was subhuman because he never married. But in this passage, Jesus makes clear that there will not be marriage in heaven. Now, I know for some of you who are married, you feel like, man, that is such a a big loss. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And maybe you never even read this passage in the Gospels before. But for maybe some of you who are married and in a fight with your spouse right now, you're like, that's great news. (laughs) Thank you. I could not put up with him for eternity. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But it actually is great news for all of us because earthly marriage is this temporal sign of an even better marriage in the age to come. You see, God designed marriage as a signpost to point us to the relationship that he, the groom, longs to have with us, his church, his bride. 
Christopher West, who's one of my favorite theologians, he says that you can sum up the whole Bible in five words. God wants to marry us. Can you say that with me? God wants to marry us. God wants to marry us. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is, is your boyfriend. Don't go out and buy a Christian t-shirt that says Jesus is my boyfriend. That's not what this means. It means that we were designed with a desire for intimacy, a desire for communion that ultimately only our creator can fill and ultimately will only be realized in eternity with Christ. God longs to be in communion with you. And marriage to God in eternity is way better than anything that we can experience in this life and on this earth. Psalm 84, 10 says, Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand days elsewhere. But it's hard for us to even believe that, to wrap our minds around, could it really be true? Living as a divorced person, longing to be married again, could it really be true that one day, being married to God would be better than a thousand days when what I think my dreams being fulfilled on this earth would feel like. Could it be true? And over and over in Scripture, Jesus tells us, the apostles tells us, that to be married to God is incomparable to any relationship that we're going to experience on this earth. It's better than anything on your bucket list. When I was a kid, I was raised in church, and I'm so grateful that I believed in the resurrection since I was young. And um, that was a great thing until I hit puberty. And then I, I kind of realized there was another thing that I really wanted to happen. And so I started praying, and I prayed a lot during my teenage years, Jesus, come back soon, but please make it after my honeymoon. I prayed that over and over, you know, because I really believed that my wedding night was going to be better than heaven. You know, or maybe not better, but I at least wanted to know. You know, like, and a lot of us approach life that way. If I could just get this, it's going to meet my need. It's going to fill, fill me up. But what I didn't understand at the time is that communion with God does not compare with any earthly intimacy that we can experience. We use this word a lot, intimacy. You know, with the teenagers often say, it means in to me you see. Really, intimacy is being fully loved, fully loved and fully known without any fear of rejection. It's being fully accepted radically without having to pretend that we're something that we're not. It's something we rarely can taste this side of heaven. God longs for us to experience that intimacy. And so one of the things he did is he gave us marriage as a foretaste of that. He gave us Friendship as a foretaste of that. He gave us this family as a foretaste of that. Some of you love coming here on Sunday mornings because it feels like, oh, I can be connected with my family of God. These are, these are people who know me and love me and accept me no matter what. But some of you still feel like if they really knew me, they would not accept me. And Jesus is saying to you, that I know you, I created you, I see everything, and I still long to be near you and with you. In this life, all of us are called to be married to God. Some of us are called to pre prepare for that through singleness, 
and celibacy. Some of us are called to be married to another person, but that marriage is ultimately a training ground, pointing us to the marriage in the age to come, pointing us to communion with Christ forever. So the reason that there's no marriage in heaven is that when you're in heaven, you no longer need a sign to point you there. And that's what marriage is. So whether you're married or you're single or you're wishing you were married, know that married people, you do not have to be your spouse's fulfillment. That is not your job. Single people, you do not have to find your soulmate in life. God wants to be your soulmate. and He's already said, I am fully yours. So whether you're married or single, the pressure is off. And everything that you've longed for in a relationship with another person, either a friend or a spouse or a someday spouse or the husband or wife that you're currently married to, all of that intimacy that you've longed for will one day be fully realized in Christ in eternity. And teenagers, you know how much, and adults too, that your hormones drive you to desire to be intimate with someone. Those desires that you actually feel now, they can feel met temporarily here on this earth. You know, when you give in to some of those temptations, they can feel met, but it always runs out and it always leaves you wanting more. But one day, that intimacy will never run out. It will be fully realized in Christ. And those of you who are experiencing beautiful intimacy with your spouse now, know that you are not going to experience loss in heaven. You are not going to experience something that God's like, oh man, this is a flaw in my plan. I didn't think through this. They were already had a, a really Christ-centered, great marriage. Jesus has not overlooked that. He won't be erasing your marriage. He will be completing your marriage. He will be fulfilling it. He will be fulfilling those longings. And for those of you who are here this morning and you are experiencing inconsolable longings and loneliness, know the hope of the resurrection is real and that marriage to Christ in eternity is going to be unbelievable. So what do we do with that now? Do we just have to wait until Jesus comes back or until we die? I just want to give you two points of applications as I close. For those of you who are single or for those of you also who are married who really face earthly lust every day. So I know that's a lot of folks in this room because I talked to a lot of you about it and because I feel with it, I feel it, and I deal with it, and we on staff deal with it, and we talk about it together. When you experience that temptation and that lust, it feels like you've got one of two options. One, you just give in to the lust and sin. It's just such a strong desire and urge, like I've just got to give in to it. And it feels like option one. Or option two is I'm just going to starve myself and just deny this longing that's there. And I'm just going to try to grip my teeth and take a lot of cold showers. You know, like this is option number two. Like this is all I've got right here. But what if there was a third option? What if every time we felt that lust, those earthly longings, and maybe it's not even lust. Maybe it's just a longing to be in a deep friendship with someone. But what if every time we felt that loneliness and that desire for intimacy, instead of giving into it or instead of starving it, we said, Jesus, this is you. This is you calling me. This is you giving me a longing for eternity with you. And I know that this looks really tempting right now and I want to give into it. 
And I know you don't want me to just stay over here and just starve myself. You want to say, hey, bring these desires to me. I want to meet those desires in you now. Y'all, Jesus longs to commune with us in a way that few of us have ever realized on this earth. And we can experience that depth of communion with him this side of heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can experience deep intimacy with Christ? He longs to be with us. And even our temptations towards lust and and even our loneliness is an arrow pointing us to this desire of the God of the universe to commune with us. The second, last point of application for you is for those of you who are here who are married or for those of you who are considering marriage. In three months, in February, we're going to have our every other year Church of the Redeemer marriage retreat. We do it every other year. I think this will be our fourth or fifth one. And it is, it is such a beautiful weekend. And I know a lot of you here are like, I'm not a marriage retreat person. You know, I, I don't do those kind of things. You know? But it is so different from anything that you've concocted in your mind. It is a really holy and sacred 24 hours together. We gather on a Thursday night for a celebration dinner, but you don't have to sit with other people and feel uncomfortable talking about your marriage. We put you at a table with your spouse and give you questions to help you grow closer together. And then we spend one night together at a hotel and we spend time talking about our marriage with you and your spouse, not in a small group where you have to feel awkward, but you get a chance to hear people from your family right here, this family of God, stand before you and share about their brokenness and the resurrection that Christ has brought to their marriage. And it is such a gift to be reminded that Jesus is in the business of resurrecting everything, including our marriage. And I would just encourage you to consider being a part of this weekend and signing up for it and making the financial investment and the time investment to invest in your marriage because it is incredible. It's tasteful. It's authentic. It's not cheesy. And it is so important to us. How we think about our marriage on this earth is so important in light of eternity. It's not an earthly invention to just make us happy and to tide us over till till heaven. It's a God-created institution to prepare us for eternity. Your marriage on earth is a dress rehearsal for your marriage to Christ forever. And if you are married and you want to know Jesus more deeply, then growing into that intimacy with your spouse is one of the best ways to do that. The whole purpose of marriage is to point us to the marriage of Christ and his church. But I think this is the first time that we've ever been mentioned the Church of the Redeemer Marriage Retreat up front at church before. It's because we are aware that over time, church has really been painful for folks who feel called to singleness or or maybe feel called to to marriage and and have been made to think that marriage is the good Christian life. And so in the past, we've, we've opted not to even mention it because we don't want to hurt those of you who are single or struggling with that. And we don't want to convey this message is that marriage is this best thing for you. But in light of this sermon, we wanted to encourage those of you who are married to grow deeper in communion with the Lord through your marriage. But we also want to make clear that God has a calling for everyone in his church, whether single or married or seeking to be married, or seeking to be single for the Lord. And if you have been hurt by the church, please come talk to me. 
we would love to talk with you and help you understand singleness in light of the glorious gospel of God. But hear this, y'all. Earthly marriage is not the goal of the Christian life. The reason that God gave us these longings is because he wants to be the ultimate fulfillment of them. The reason that we have this desire for intimacy is because we are looking for a union that will last forever. That will last always and forever. And it's only met in Christ. Our only hope is communion with Christ. That's what we were created for. And that's incredible news. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, our souls crave communion with you forever. Take these earthly longings that we have and use them to point us towards that which is eternal. Jesus, have mercy. Help us to be less satisfied with the desires of our flesh and teach us to long for more. Jesus, when our hearts wander from you, draw us near to you. When our minds are fixed on the things before us, remind us of that which is to come. Don't let us lose sight of our true beloved. Jesus, wrap us in your divine love and fix our eyes on you alone. Amen.